All right, so last week we introduced the concept with Matir Asurin that in fact it was very closely tied with Yosef, which maybe wasn't such a surprise once we heard that because Yosef, of course, was in jail. And I'd say that the high points of what we spoke about that were directly on the topic was, number one, when the, the parak that is the, of Tehillim that is the source of the phrase matira surim, right? I should have written that one up on the board again. I didn't. Okay, so that was from Tehillim Kuf Mem Vav. Hashem does justice for the exploited. He gives bread to the hungry. Hashem frees the imprisoned. Hashem pokeach ivrim. Hashem zokev kifufim. Hashem ohev tzadikim. Hashem opens the eyes of the blind. Hashem straightens the bent. And Hashem loves the righteous. And that Rav Hirsch told us this parak of Tehillim is specifically talking about the experience of the individual person, each individual person, experiencing Hashem's loving care in his own life and proclaiming the Hashkacha Pratis, the fact that it was Hashem's direct hand controlling him. And uh, maybe I was a little nervy and I said, you know, it's nice to say Hashem does justice for the exploited, and Hashem feeds the hungry, and Hashem frees the imprisoned, and makes the blind sighted, and straightens the bent. And it's all lovely to say that that's Hashem loving the tzaddikim, but who made them bent, and who made them blind, and who put them in jail. I mean, we can't, it's not really intellectually honest for us to ignore the question. And by the way, I would say that the majority of people you meet either ignore the question, or they recognize the question and they're afraid to say it because everyone will tell them, what kind of person are you? How could you say that? And if they do say it, so then they're like off the derech already. Like they've like somehow left, right? Because, meaning it's a difficult topic for people to grapple with. Nobody can answer, so they figure there is no answer. Or they're afraid to talk about it, but inside their heart they feel there's no answer. Okay, so the truth is by bringing out the question, this is an important question to bring out. Well, like on Thursday, Regal Brook just said, Hashem gives you challenges if he loves you. you right. Know, like, so you have Hashem answer, it, it, it is the answer. It's just, the, and it's just worth exploring it. It's worth yeah. exploring it in particular because you have to be where you could feel that. First of all, it's difficult. You can't really tell that to somebody. Right. So these are, right. really all of this discussion is only something that's self-reflective. It's something we can tell ourselves. Last thing we can tell someone else. So in this context, right, we're not talking about anyone's problems. We're just talking about these concepts. Because, as one of my teachers said in seminary, you know something and you place it on your heart. And then when your heart needs it and it opens up looking, it's there. Right? Because in the end, those are the most effective and helpful things, are things that you kind of know them. But when you need them, then you find them, right? And they're there for you when you really need them. So in the short answer is, which is really what this Pasuk says. It, it concludes all this by saying, Hashem loves the righteous, right? So we have talked in the past about from the pain we build our bridges, right? The idea that it's actually in the place where something is hurting, that we reach out and daven to Hashem, and we connect to Him, and we come closer to Him. So there's an aspect to which we can feel that the fact that I am suffering is also Hashem calling me and saying, come, I want to talk to you. I want you near to me. 
right? And we can't, we are able to do that. We are able to feel that and sense that. So let's see this, this pattern over here. So we spoke about Yosef, and we got to the point where we said, well, there were two things. One was, we said, when did Yosef's imprisonment really begin? It actually began when he was caught by his brothers and thrown in the pit. That's when he started to be imprisoned. So it's not just about spending two years or, or you know, however many years he spent in the, this Beit HaSurim in Egypt. He was imprisoned way before that. He was not free. There's even a way you can think about it that when he gets away from Potiphar's house and he's thrown in the jail, that's already like, for him, you don't know if that's the bottom, rock bottom, or if it's already on the way up. Mrs. Potiphar may well have been rock bottom for Yosef. So there's kind of these different places that we can look at. But we started by just talking about where did it all start. Where it actually started was when he was thrown in jail. So it could be probably not this session. If I can, I think we can try and meet next week. We could really bring that around even more to Pesach. I have like a whole Pesach section that will build off of this. Um, but I'm not sure where we're going to get to today. And furthermore, when Yosef meets his brothers, he says, and that's the first pasuk I put up there, now, do not be frustrated and don't let it, don't be angry, that you sold me here. Because for sustenance, Hashem has sent me before you for nourishment and for sustenance. So even if we don't understand exactly how he got to this statement yet, or, or, I mean, not that we'll ever understand what his thought process was, but how you would get to this statement, we see that Yosef himself, his attitude was, don't be angry, don't be upset. God sent me here for sustenance. And we did see that there's a kind of a theme there because there's a Pesach in Hosea, which is the third one. This is all review from last week. The third Pesach, which is from Hosea, is I shall pull them with ropes of man, with bonds or with cords of love, and I will be for them as one who lifts the yoke off of their cheeks, and will feed them. And that, the Medrash says, is referring to Yosef. That is a description of Yosef's life, being pulled with the bonds of man, with bonds of love, and it comes around to being fed. So what we're going to do this time is we're going to take this one more or two steps further. One piece that we need to notice is the, is the middle verse that I put there. This is from Beratius. This is part of the... Uh, outcome from the sin of eating from the tree in Gan Eden. Hashem says to Adam, Arura The land will be not so fertile on your behalf. With frustration, you will eat from it. All the days of your life. Now you do see the pattern here, right? In all of these, you have, well, especially the first two, you have the frustration. This Itzavon, um, with Yosef, he says, Al te'atzvu, don't be frustrated. Hashem tells Adab, you will eat from the earth. It will require itzavon. We see that there's food is involved over here. There's this like theme of food, which it is really, really important to have the food you require. 
but it's still a little unexpected maybe to always have everything revolving around food, especially if you're talking about your emotional frustration and your emotional pain, like maybe that's not the moment that you're thinking about the food exactly, so what's going on with the food? So we have mentioned before about itzavon. We've talked about Rav Hirsch's explanation. Itzavon, we know the word like atzuv, right, is like sad, but it doesn't mean sadness. Not in Chumash, the word is not sadness. What it means is, and I use the word frustration, Rav Hirsch says itzavon is the, is the state in which the world is now, which is a state of you have to give something up to get something good. In the perfect world, there's no concept that you have to sacrifice or give up anything to get what you're working for, right? You want a fruit, you reach out, you take a fruit. You don't have to spend years planting, cultivating, not, doing, not learning Torah because you're busy with the orchard until the fruit grows and then you spray it and you weed and you water and you pick, right? You don't have to do all that in Ghanaian. There's a change in the world that Hashem is describing, and he describes it for the woman as well, right? You'll have children is also. This is the, the key difference for mankind. It's also indicated in the fact that the land is cursed. By the way, Rav Hirsch is emphatic about the fact that the word arur is never applied toward man and woman, even in Gan Eden. It's interesting, because we always think there's these like, curses. They aren't applied to us. But there is this idea of arura, which we've talked about, as the opposite of bracha. Whereas bracha is a sort of positive feedback loop of us praising Hashem, right? It's two-directional. Us praising Hashem, recognizing Him as the source of everything, and that in itself coming back as more bracha to us, and this is a cycle. Arura is the opposite cycle. It's where things are held back, not able to produce. <coughs> Rav Hirsch, excuse me. Um, there's a place where Avraham says, Anochi hole hariri. He says to Hashem, what good is it to me if you give me all these blessings if I have no children? Ariri there means barren, like he has no kids. Rav Hirsch says, Ariri, even though it's with an ayin, and Arur are closely related words. It means not fertile, not able to produce. It's the opposite of a bracha. Okay, so the land is Arura. The land now will not produce as it was able to produce. Ba'avurecha, on your behalf. That's what the word means, ba'avurecha. It doesn't mean because of you, like it's your fault. Ba'avurecha means on your behalf. So the land will be restricted or less fertile on your behalf with frustration, with sacrifice, with having to compromise and give things up in order to get that which is really important to you. You'll eat from it all the days of your life. Hmm. <laughs> so somehow in this original root is really the answer to everything else that we're starting to find out. All right. Okay. So the world that we live in is a world of frustration. It's a world where instead of just going straight for the good, we may have to go through a painful process of getting to what's good. That's really the message Hashem gives to Adam and to Chava. And yet, at the same time, making clear, this is for you. This is on your behalf that I'm going to make it that with itzavon, that with difficulty, you'll be able to get that which you need. And actually, parents mimic that with their kids. We do. Sometimes better, sometimes less right. well. Right? I would say that's not a skill that's on the upswing 
right it's now. We'll talk today. about it a little bit. It's very not fashionable today, and it's not always a favor. It's not always a favor. You know, a, an adult who doesn't know how to be patient to get what he needs is not no, that's, in a good shape right. for himself. You know, like that's not the skills we want our kids to have. That's why we come on Thursdays, right? <laughs> I mean, the skills we want our kids to have are skills that will actually be helpful to them. And even though we have pity on them and we feel bad for them suffering, there's a certain amount of just plain hard work that is really a blessing if you can give it to someone. So I'm going to give you a, a comparison of this idea. Let's say I'm uh, working at the front office of camp and the phone rings. So I pick up my phone and I look out the window and what I see is I see one of those barriers into the parking lot. You know those little like fence things that go up and down. And there's a girl behind it. And on the phone she says, help, I need someone to help me. I'm stuck behind this barrier. Okay. So I have a few options. Option number one, I push the button <laughs> over here and it lifts the barrier over there and, ah, her problem's gone, and she walks through. Okay. But if I think about it, I could do something different. Now, that is easiest for me and easiest for her. But what's going to happen the next time she comes up to the barrier? She's going to buzz again, and she's going to say, I'm stuck. Help. Okay. So there's another option. I could say to her, you know, if you just walk, like, five steps to your right and then walk forward, you'll be around the barrier. You can just walk around it. And I can tell her that over the phone. I can describe it to her, and she can do that. Now, that will take me longer, so it's kind of annoying for me. But I could do that as a favor to her, because now she has a tool she can use. And not only can she use it now, but she can use it in the future. So I'm investing some extra effort now in order to help her in the long term be able to deal with this kind of barrier in the future. I actually spent some time thinking about this and saying, I feel like there's something missing, right? There's really another step you could go with this. The other step is I could do something different completely. I could not tell her how to get around. I could ask her different questions to help lead her to the line of thought that will help her realize a way to get around. So I could say, what if, okay, what if you tried to get through the barrier? She says, I just keep walking and I keep walking and I keep walking and I keep bumping into it and I can't get through. I say, okay, what else could you try? I say, well, okay, maybe I could walk a different direction. Or maybe the barrier doesn't go all the way to the top. I could get over it. Maybe the barrier doesn't go all the way to the bottom. I could get under it. What I've done there is I've not just handed her a tool she can use for barriers when she recognizes them. I've helped her to elicit a different way of thinking about how to look for tools, even when someone isn't handing you tools. That will take a lot longer. She might come up with an answer that involves crawling under the barrier, <laughs> which is like messy, especially if I'm the one doing the laundry, right? And now her clothes got like all dusty. Um, might take a really long time of like counseling her through this on the phone. <laughs> but it's really a much greater chesed. It's harder for me. It's harder for her, and it's a much greater chesed. Not only that, but each level of help really includes the previous ones. Meaning, if what I do is I tell her how to get around, then I have, in fact, removed the barrier from in front of her, or at least gotten her through it. So I have reached out and helped her. 
even though she experiences it as she had to go around the barrier. The barrier wasn't moved. And if I help her through questions develop the tools to find the way around the barrier on her own, then I really have also done the other two things that were before it. Now she's got a tool also. And she also is through the barrier. But she experiences that as less chesed. I mean, the greatest chesed as she experiences it is, I need to get through the barrier, and the barrier just like disappears. That appears to be the greatest chesed. But if you think about it, the truth is that it is a greater chesed to help her figure it out on her own, which means that the greatest chesed is the most hidden chesed. Now, that's really a poorer message. The greatest chesed is the most hidden chesed. That's Hashem saying, Hastir, Astir, Asponai. I hide my face. Okay. Now, this idea is a nice idea. I think it's a very nice idea. I'm going to tell you how delighted and astonished I was to see it in the Pachad Yitzchak. The Pachad Yitzchak on Purim gives a different mashal from mine. He says, What happens? The, you know, a king, it doesn't matter. Somebody, he doesn't even say a king. The boss, the boss sends two of his guys out. Each one has to meet someone at 3 in the morning at some secret rendezvous location. They've got to identify they've got the right person so they don't get infiltrated by the wrong person and bring them back. The first one has a, happens to have a candle with him. So at 3 in the morning, he meets up on this dark corner with somebody you know, wearing a black trench coat and got their hat low over their face. He lights the candle, he looks at his face, and he sees, he can identify, is this the right person or not? It is, great, takes him home. The second guy does not have a candle. So the second guy teaches himself to recognize people's voices really, really accurately. He trains himself in how to identify pitch and timber, and he's going to be able to ID people. And it takes him, like, at least a week of training, like, testing it on all different people to make sure he's not just going to be fooled when he meets somebody. He goes out to this dark corner in the middle of the night, and meet somebody and he says, you know, what's the secret password and let me hear your voice and, you know, okay, he identifies him and brings him back. So Futner says, which one has the more accurate and representative identification? The one with the candle. Because he could just see if it's the right person. You know, the odds of there being a mistake are much lower for the one with the candle than the one who's doing it by voice. But what happens at six in the morning when the sun comes up? When the sun comes up, the guy with the candle, his candle is useless. Not because it doesn't give any light, but the light is irrelevant with the against the backdrop of the light of the sun. So his candle doesn't do anything for him anymore. The one who taught himself how to listen to voices has a skill. He is a different person with different capabilities. And that is true even when the sun comes up. And now both of them have perfect identification of who they're with. So, the, right, once the sun comes up, if he looks to the guy next to him, he knows that it's the right person. But he also has a new skill. He says, this is, this is the difference of avoda in the night, of geula of haster astir, redemption, geula, right, revelation of God through God's face is hidden, versus revelation of God through Pesach, God's face is revealed, so to speak. Awesome concept. When we have to hunt for Hashem in the darkness, we change. We're different. Do we have 
as much of a sense of what Shekhinah means and what God's presence in the world is and how he acts in the world? No. It's hidden. We're struggling. The whole Megillah is like that. Never once says Hashem's name straight out. Like, compare that with the story of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim, right? It's, if anything, in the Haggadah, Moshe's name is hidden. You shouldn't think there was anything natural about it, right? It's, it's like the opposite. But when the sun comes up, in other words, someday soon, the sun will come up, and this world we're in, which we think is a normal amount of brightness, because our eyes keep trying to adjust to it, but really God is dark and hidden from us, when the sun comes up, even the Geula of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim will be pale in the light of the son of Mashiach and the degree of God's revelation into the world. So what will we have with us then? How much we've changed in the dark. It's true. Do we recognize, do we have any sense of Hashem's presence and effect in the world compared to our ancestors who left Mitzrayim? Not at all. They had the candle. <laughs> We're like stumbling around in the dark trying to hear, is he calling me? Yeah? But, but when the sun comes up, there's something that happens in the dark where we change if we're trying to find and identify him in the dark. Okay. This is an astonishing, astonishing insight that he gives. Where does he write that? Pachad Yitzchak of Purim. Uh, on Purim? On Purim, Lama Dalad. Okay. I want to not, well, I want to come back to Yosef a little bit more. Let's talk about Pesach, then we'll go back to Yosef, and we'll come back to Pesach, hopefully. The Pachad Yitzchak, Rav Yitzchak Kutner, also has a mimer on Pesach that works with this idea, because it's mimer Yudzayin in Pesach. Because we still want to understand something about the process. Right? I mean, Hashem made Purim, Hashem made Pesach, but within a month we're supposed to leap, right, from one to the other. Okay, so he says, what's the structure of the Haggadah? And this is uh, a classic line from Chazal. The structure of the Haggadah is, Matrilin bignus, we begin with, gnus is sort of disparaging, or, or saying the things that aren't so nice to say about somebody. Umesayimin bishvach, and we end with the praise, with the glory. So we start with, you say, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, or some say this applies to, we start with, in the beginning we were idol worshippers. In other words, we don't ignore the fact that it started with something painful. When we say, even about Pesach, Hashem redeems, right? Hashem frees the imprisoned. We do, in fact, start by saying, yeah, we were imprisoned. Chazal were not advising us to ignore this question. We just do it out of our own weakness, right? But the truth is the Haggadah is trying to elicit us to notice that. You start with that which is not so nice to think about and end with that which is amazing to think about. That's how the Haggadah works. And the Maharal says... If you think about this more deeply, you will realize that the glorious praise that follows an acknowledgement of that which was difficult or unpleasant is much greater praise, just like the day which follows 
the night. Okay, so you remember we've talked about day and night. And we talked about different ways of thinking about day and night. You can think about night as the end of the day. If you think about night as the end of the day, it's kind of purposeless. The only meaning it has is a time when you can stop being in the day and like relax, right? You say, oh my gosh, if I don't stop, I'm going to collapse. Okay, so you stop. Or night could be before the day, which is how it is in Jewish calendar. Night is before the day means the purpose of night is a time to prepare myself for the day. I will build up energy so that tomorrow I will have the energy to approach the work of the next day. So the Maharal is saying that when you start with that which is unpleasant and you end with that which is amazing and glorious and praiseworthy, this has much more value, just like day following night. Hmm, right? He says, this is far more complete. This is a shlemus because shlemus, completion, perfection in this world comes after, doesn't just come after difficulty and what he calls shiflus, like a low level. It comes because of the shiflus. The process in this world, it's what Rav Hirsch described as itzavon, okay? The process in this world is perfection and greatness follows difficulty. It follows it, but it doesn't just follow it like, well, if you pay the price and suffer through it, eventually you get to what's good. It's the difficulty that brings you to the greatness in the same way that he described on Purim, that through the search and the training and the seeking, we become something different. We become something greater. So that when the sun rises, not only is the sun up, but we're greater too. Okay. And by the way, there's a concept that in the future, sometimes even in the base of Mikdash, day does precede night, right? That's a perfected world where the day is already great. But the world we live in now, the post-chait world, is a world where difficulty leads to greatness. What's another example of that? And the Pasuk says, Kasha nafalti kamti. Because I fell, I rose up. Because I sat in the darkness, Hashem is my light. And Chazal say, because I fell, I rose up. There's no concept of kamti, I got up, if I'm not down. It's not just, oh, when I fell down, I was able to get up again. If I was standing the whole time, you don't say I got up. The power of getting up is only evolved if you've fallen down. Right? Sheva yipot tzadik lakam. Seven times the tzadik falls and gets up. Right? It's because he fell seven times that he's able to get up and become a tzaddik. He says, furthermore, how do we tell over the story of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim? We ask questions. It's got to be answers to questions. You have four questions. Not only that, if two Talmidei Chachamim, who are big experts in Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim, are sitting and having a Seder together, they ask each other questions. And if a person sits by himself to have a Seder, which can happen, you ask yourself questions. What is that? Like, why? Right? Because the story of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim has to come through questions. Why? Because the story of the revelation and the process we're supposed to go through, it's moving from Purim to Pesach, and even at the beginning of Pesach is a process of shlemus, completion, perfection, that sprouts and grows from within that which is lacking. 
if you have a question, you have something missing. You say, what is missing? I don't understand. Something's wrong. I don't get it. When you get an answer to a question, it has a bigger impact on you and changes you. Even if the answer isn't perfect or you didn't understand the answer perfectly, you are much more affected by the answer than if someone just told you something and you never had the question at all. It's astonishing. This is what Pesach is. This is the story of the Haggadah, is we start with that which is difficult and we bring it out to that which is a higher level. He brings many other examples from within Pesach with all the, with how much we multiplied and all of this, but, but this is the essential concept. First of all, this by itself is a fantastic way to think about going into Pesach. When you think about the search for the chametz, I mean, it's like one big question. Spend a whole week asking a question, is there chametz? <laughs> right? Like, what, what is, where's, where's the problem? I'm not ignoring my problems, right? I'm not usually locking my house and walking away and having yantif, right? When I look for chametz, when I do that searching process, what I'm doing is I'm saying I'm, I'm looking for the questions. I'm not afraid to find, not afraid to find the chametz. What I'm afraid of is not looking for chametz. Ignoring the questions, that's scary. Finding questions, that's where it all grows from. Okay? You have to not be afraid to ask questions. Answers there will be. Okay. Let's go back to Yosef for a little while. What is the ultimate imprisonment? Because in the end, it's very nice. We're talking about all these things. But what does that have to do with Yosef? I mean, he suffered before, right? But like we said, it's not enough to just say, well, you, you somehow have to suffer, like pay some price before we let you into the club of those who are glor glorified or happy, right? So what was it that happened to Yosef during that? And what happened there is the struggle with Mrs. Potiphar. This is ultimately a story of a battle with the Sahara, which is, of course, how this process started. Right. The process starts with bringing in the Sahara and Ghanedin. So maybe it's not so surprising that the battle is the battle of fighting the Sahara. All right. Let's, I, I have some more. These are, these are last week's handouts. All right. So... Oh, this is, that's just by mistake. It must have gotten put away in the wrong one. You, you have this yeah, one. Yeah, anyway. Okay. All right. All right. When, the Ben Ishchai and the Ben Yehoyada, the Ben Ishchai is a Sephardi, great Sephardi rabbi, he says, what's the normal way to deal with your Yitzhahara? And the best way is really to avoid it. If you know that something is a problem, stay away from it. Now, I make that sound easy. First of all, it's easier than fighting it head on. 
<laughs> it is easier. But second of all, it means you have to think. You have to say, you know, when I, when I have the chocolate on the counter, I tend to eat it, to use a really non-threatening example, <laughs> okay? Maybe, maybe it's a threatening example, I don't know. Right? When I have the chocolate on the counter, I tend to eat it, so I'm going to keep it in the cupboard. That way it won't be right in front of me. Or I won't buy it, I'll eat something before I go to the store, and I won't be hungry, and then I won't buy it, and then it won't be in the house, so then I won't be tempted that it's there, and then I'll find something else to eat. Right? That's like you plan ahead to avoid the Yetzirah in the first place, rather than getting there. Now that, that is an example, by the way, of falling down and getting up. Because right? you probably didn't get to think of that until you stumbled a few times. So when you stumble and you say, you know, I keep stumbling, I notice that I'm stumbling, what can I do to make that different? The ben Ishai says, Yosef did that. He also tried the trick of, well, I can't avoid it completely, so can I think of it in a way that will turn me off and be disgusting? Is there some way I can think about it in advance so that when I'm fit, because he couldn't avoid Mrs. Potiphar. That wasn't an option. He was stuck in that house. He didn't have a way out. At some point, Yosef realized he actually has to tackle the Yitzhahara head on, which is a very much a battle of last resort. It was a battle of last resort that he had no option but to face. So, but you mean by yeah, sometimes you can rephrase something in your mind so that it, it turns you off. You can also do this to the positive, which is a very, very powerful Musser tool. So, let's say, let's say it's difficult not to eat certain things. Like once you see them, you eat them, or you always clear your plate, or you always, okay. So for some people, what works is they can visualize that they'll be thin, and they really want to be thin. They want to be thin so badly that if they think about that while they're eating, they will control what they eat. Some people, it's the negative. They put a picture of themselves at their worst, the least flattering possible picture, put it on the table, right? And then when you see that, that reminds you, that's, it makes you feel disgusted, and you associate that with the food, and that will help you not to eat the food. For some people, that's not enough. And that's not enough. Maybe they don't care enough about looking good. But maybe if you learn that if you control the way you eat, there's all kinds of new spiritual pathways that are open to you, then if you think of that while you're eating, you might really want that enough to say, I'm going to do like the Rivet says, and I'm going to leave a little bit on my plate. I will hold myself back because it will make me a more kadosh person. Maybe that's what's appealing to you. What is this Yosef's case? Yosef, he, the claims that Yosef did that, that he both tried to avoid it, and when he couldn't avoid it, he would try to envision it as disgusting or nauseating or turning him off, and it wasn't working. Is it the whole process or just That's much later. That's later on. So it was before that. This is before that. This is before that. Okay. Now, let's see if I can find the puzzle quickly. Sorry. Okay. And it was that Mrs. Potiphar spoke like this to him all the time, and then she, uh, sorry, Mrs. Mrs. Potiphar spoke to her husband, and she said, oh, you know, your servant came to me. 
And then when I raised my voice and I screamed, he left his garment, Vayanas Hachutza, and he fled outside. Vayanas Hachutza, he fled outside. And the Ben Ishchai says, let me just fix this here because I have the wrong words. The Ben Ishchai says, this is reminding us of what happened with Avraham at the Brisbane HaBesarim. It says, Hashem Vayotze Oso Hachutza, Hashem lifted him to outside. Hachutza, outside. This is the place that Yosef fled to, is the place that God took Abraham. This place called outside, Hachutza. So what's that place? What's this place that's called Hachutza? Hashem took Abraham, Hachutza, and said to him, look across to the heavens, count the stars if you can, count them, that's how your children shall be. And Yosef fled to Hachutza. He fled to this place where Avraham could look at and count, not count, these <laughs> children, because they'd be as many as the stars. Okay, so Rashi tells us over there, what is this Hachutza? Hashem took him outside of his mazel and said, you are not destined to stand at the level of mazel. You are above mazel. So you know that your name is Avram, and Avram can't have any children. You saw that in the heavens. You saw that in the stars and in the constellations. I'm taking you, hachutza, outside of that. You're going to be someone who has children more than the stars. Right? You're, you're above that. He took him outside of mehalalo shal olam, outside of the atmosphere of the earth, and raised him above the stars. And this is why it says, gaze down upon the stars. That's what Rashi says. Rabbi Pshat. This is how we understand God took him outside. So the Ben Ishchai says, it's also over here. He ran to this place that Hashem had taken Avraham, which is a place where you do not have to be controlled by nature. You can go somewhere supernatural. That was why I brought the, ta the tables back in. Because if you look at this, this is why I made the line across darker this time. If you look at level three, which is corresponding to Olam Hayatsira, the world of formation, okay, formation is that which shapes the bracha that's coming down from Hashem. Ritzor is to shape it, whereas above that is the creation of what will be given, but it hasn't taken a shape. So we gave in the past as examples the ideas that are associated with Olam Hayatsira. Mazel. Right? Mazel is a word like nozel, to flow. Because if you imagine that the, the, where we go, the astrology, which we do not know now, so if anyone tells you about astrology now, you can just ignore them because they don't know what they're talking about. There is such a thing. We just don't know about it. We don't know what the real rules are for it. It doesn't matter anyway to us because we are Ahutza, We're Avram's children. But if you imagine a colander that's got patterns of holes punched into it. You know how like some of the nice ones, they have like stars or designs. Then when the water comes in, where it ends up below is determined by the placement of those holes. Okay, that's mazel. Mazel is that which forms and shapes the blessing that's coming down and directs it to where it's going. That's why it has the word, it means flow. Okay, so that is the association here in Olam Hayatsira. And Hashem is saying, I'm taking you to a higher level than that. And if you look across the table, Olam Hayatsira and Olam Ha'asiyah 
these two are within the realm of that which is natural. Okay? You see it also includes things like climate. Okay, the natural things in the universe that, that direct how things go. That's how Hashem, one way that Hashem delivers bracha to the world. But the top two levels, Atzilas and Bria, these are Lamalam in Hateva, these are supernatural. So Yosef moves to a place that's Lamala min Hateva. Yosef went out from his normal infrastructure to a place where the infrastructure couldn't rule over him. And that's a place of the supernatural. And this is why he says the bones of Yosef were, were the immediate cause of the Red Sea splitting. Right, we say it in Halo. Malacha Hayam Kisanos Ocean, how come you're turning back? Why are you running? Vayanas. Why is the ocean fleeing? It's because Vayanas Hachutza. Because Yosef fled to Chutza, to somewhere outside of nature. And so when his bones were brought out of Mitzrayim and they brought them all the way up to the edge of the sea, the sea fled. The supernatural could happen. The natural doesn't have to have control anymore. In front of Yosef, nature will run. Why? Because he was able to run away from that which should have trapped him in nature, which is the Eight Sahara. Which is why Regesh, emotion, is down at the level of number three. <laughs> it's not physical, but it's in the world of our nature. It's how we are. But there's somewhere new, supernatural we can go above that. There are places we can go, including even our intellect. The ability to think and say, I'm going to choose something different. That's supernatural. So Rabbi Goldberg hinted to that um, when he said, the Yetzirah always seems to have more power than we have. Right? Like, it doesn't seem fair. It's a supernatural thing when you overcome it. Yeah, but the thing is, Hashem is up there with us in the supernatural. Went out of this idea of going out, yeah, it's not that their mazel changed. They, they go above the level of mazel. Mazel has no effect at all. We say with the Jewish people, mazel doesn't affect us. I have heard this, but I, I never know how to So we're going to stop here. The way we can relate to the idea that mazel doesn't affect us is to realize that we always have access to Hashem. We always have access to the supernatural. Always. Hashem took Avraham out and said, your children will be like this. They will be above the stars. When there's something, you don't say, well, it always seems to happen to me like this. It must be my mazel. Because if you're Jewish, it's not so. Why don't we wish if, people mazel to Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So that's, that's, that's an interesting question. The answer is surely in the sense of mazel as this is how Hashem set up the blessing to come naturally. I think that the reason is because generally speaking, you're not asking for the supernatural. You ask for it only where you need it. We don't normally daven for a nace. We daven for that which is natural. Natural delivery. So sometimes you have to be very creative to come up with how this could happen naturally. <laughs> so that you're not asking for an open miracle. channel, there's still a... a an element right. of natural. Right. It is a very strange thing that we say mazel tov. I'm not saying it isn't. It's strange. Because the principle is the Jews are not ruled by mazel. We don't have a malach. We don't have a malach of, of the Jewish people. My grandmother's always telling all of us to daven for the mazel of our kids. It's interesting. She's so into that's one of her things. I wouldn't tell you to ignore your grandmother. 
I, I don't know. I'm not an expert. I don't know. No, it's interesting. I don't know. It's completely relevant. Make the channel line up so that the bracha comes down see. in the in the proper natural. It could way. be. I don't know. It could be. That's what I was saying. When I think that what we're supposed to do is daven for things to come naturally. In general, in general, we do we do daven for miracles, but generally speaking, the miracles we look for are the miracles that are inside of, that come from our overcoming our nature. That creates a state of being in the space of supernatural. That put, we, put, we can bring ourselves up to there because Hashem has opened that door for us with Avraham already. We can put ourselves there. But when we ask Hashem for things, generally speaking, we're asking for natural delivery. So it could be it's like what you said. Like when we say Mazel Tov, we're saying, Hashem, please send it through normal Mazel, like not using up anybody's merits in this world to give them a spirit. And the truth is, if you take like the approach, which I'm also not an expert in, but the approach of Rav Yerucham Lavavitz. Um, so he, he brings also, there's a, there's a Gemara that talks about a man who's maybe his wife passed away and they had a small baby and he didn't have any food for the baby and Hashem made him lactate so he could nurse the baby. And so the Chachamim said, like, look what an amazing miracle happened for this person, that he was able to nurse the baby. And they also kind of said, like, the bigger miracle is really, like, when a woman nurses a baby, not when a man nurses a baby. Meaning the greater miracle and the greater merit is when Hashem provides for us according to the normal rules of nature. Hmm. We don't really hmm. over... Now, it could be it ties in with what we're talking about even, this idea of achievement, because Hashem really could always do everything open miracles, and yet he says, Recha, on your behalf, you're going to eat the fruits of this world through the natural hard work. Like, that's how na nature changed. And that was for our sake. So that means that when something happens that's an open miracle, it's a little bit questionable if that's better for us than if it had happened in a more natural way still Hashem's hand. It comes back to that question. What's a greater chesed? The hidden miracle or the open miracle? What's really better for us? If we're the one behind the barrier, then it's actually, but it's a general principle, in fact. It's interesting. Like, it doesn't mean we don't say, Hashem, please just send Mashiach. Like, I don't have a perfect answer for you. I, know, I don't. Maybe the question so is more important for us right now than the answer. Because <laughs> we also hear of stories of, you know, like rabbis who didn't have uh, oil for their Shabbat candles right. and they put water. But remember, in that story, which is a Gemara, which is a Gemara, right. it says Hashem who made oil burn can make vinegar burn. That's somebody who's already living at a level. They're, they're thinking... So did they What's the difference in nature? Meaning, it's miraculous when oil burns. Yeah. So why isn't it the same thing a vinegar would burn? Like, what's mm. there's uh, <laughs> there's a level to which we bring ourselves into the yeah, world of the oil. supernatural, and the more we're up there, mm -hmm. the more natural the supernatural kind of becomes. Right? The oh, more okay. we see that it's Hashem's hand with us, the more we're living with Hashem's hand revealed to us. Mm then there's no, there's no conflict between saying this is hidden, this is open, because I've already revealed that it's open. 
I've already revealed to myself this is God's hand acting on me. Then it makes no difference. I don't see any difference between whether he acted on me this way or he acted on me that way. Okay, so you're saying it's like it, in, it, in itself the fact that the oil is burning, that in itself is, is a miracle. That's what he says. So how is it? That, that's, that's explicit that's exactly to that Kamara. He says, God who made oil burn makes vinegar burn. Like, there's no. Yeah. But, but how, but we couldn't do that. Right, no. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that he made it burn. He, he's not saying, look, I can do this wonderful hocus pocus Kabbalistic thing and make the mm. vinegar burn. It's the opposite. It's that, I don't know, what were you thinking, my dear daughter, every time you lit a candle anyway? How did you think the candle was lighting? <laughs> right? Every okay. time no, I strike a match, why, thinking I'm thinking it's friction. Yeah. <laughs> what? It, what? Friction. Friction is God hiding himself behind something that we think is, a, is friction. Sometimes he hides himself out in the open. Gravity. Nobody's ever figured out what gravity is really about yet. So, We're just used to it, so we call it gravity. We don't call it God. I don't does know. Does it mean that matter means just nature? That what means? Mazal, mazal is this is a a piece. This is where mazal is over here. Jews function up in here though. We really do. That's the message of Brisbane Abbasar. Hashem says he lifts them up over the stars and he's up here. Mazal is part of the physical world. The 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 magicians in the time of Mitzrayim, they're working over here. They're trying to recombine that which comes down, so that before it solidifies into the reality over here, they can change it. Uh -huh. They're trying to mix around up here. Okay. That's the level of, yeah. I didn't say it was good to ask for miracles. No, 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 I said that the general principle as I, as I have learned it, I don't know too much about these things, it's really not my area. Um, the general principle is that we typically ask Hashem to send us natural salvation. I mean, we say, please save us. Please save us. We don't. So if you think that all the time there's always a refuah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu makdim refuah For every disease, there is first created a cure. Do I know what the cure is? Maybe not. Then if I'm davening to Hashem to send a cure, am I asking for an open miracle? I'm not asking for a reversal of the natural way of the world, right? Not asking him to, to make gravity turn upside down for five minutes while I stop myself from falling off a skyscraper. I'm not asking for that. I'm asking for a natural miracle. That we should find a refuah, that we should find a doctor who's a good shaliyah. Right? That, mm -hmm. That's what I'm asking for. That it should go into remission. Things go into remission. That's natural. Does that mean I don't appreciate it's God's hand? My job is to reveal God's presence in the world. What I'm asking of him is not necessarily that. Mm -hmm. What I ask him is that I should merit to reveal his presence in the world by recognizing it. It's a very different thing. We're gonna, we will continue on this, although, like I said, this, this area is not something I'm... I have one other question. I'll try and ask. I'll try and get more for us, but I don't know. When we say that the Jews are at this level, does that mean everybody has the genetic potential no, no, this and is our spiritual reality things. is that Hashem interacts with us with Hashgacha Pratis. Remember, that's how Rav Hirsch started. He uh -huh. said, you know what this is all about? This is about the individual experience of Hashgacha Pratis and proclaiming it. Recognizing that Hashem's hand is directly, in fact, controlling our lives at all times. 
That this is up here. By the way, in the base hamikdash, mm -hmm. non-Jews can go till here. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Right. It almost becomes obvious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After it's been revealed. <laughs> After it's been revealed, when the sun comes up, we can all see it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, so I think we have even a beginning to uh, to going into Pesach as well, right? That Ways of good. thinking about on a personal level, yeah, both in the preparing phase, yeah. Yeah, in the preparing phase, but also in the Seder itself. Yeah. The idea of being able to say, not to deny that I'm working hard, not to deny that I'm suffering, not to deny that it's painful, not to deny that cleaning for Pesach is painful and suffering and difficult, right? But to be able to begin to say, but I do see that this is a pattern. And the pattern is that through the struggle, I get to somewhere very good. And that puts me in a very different frame of mind. OK, so the, the line from Rav Orlowick, which I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of times I've said it, very, very helpful. I don't know where you're taking me, God, but I know it's somewhere good. Part of the power of that statement is that you start by saying, I don't know where you're taking me, God. Right? Because if you just start by saying, I know you're taking me somewhere good, you have forgotten to acknowledge the difficulty before. Mm. Yeah? I don't know where you're taking me, God, but I know it's somewhere good. And that That's lets so you take a breath. Yeah. And lets you stop fighting the process and start figuring out what you're going to do now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So next week in Mitzvah Shem, I think great. you'll make it. Yeah. Can yeah. you make it next week? Yeah. Totally. We'll try and like finish off both the topic of Matir so Asurim and also put a little bit more on Pesach going in. Okay, Brilliant. thank you.